This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Professor Gaminda Bambra is Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick and she's also Guest Professor of Sociology and History at the Linnaeus University in Sweden. Her work looks at how, within sociological understandings of modernity, the experiences and claims of non-European others have been rendered invisible to the standard narratives and analytical frameworks of sociology and she has put forward an argument for the recognition of connected histories in the reconstruction of historical sociology at a global level. Uh, in her talk today, Professor Bambra will present a forthcoming paper on the sociological dimensions of the British vote to leave the European Union and the racialised discourses at work around it. So we're very happy to have Professor Bambra with us today. So thank you very much for the invitation to come and speak here today. And it's particularly nice because I'm a DNMA student here at LSE and I was taught by Anthony Smith and was part of ASA myself while I was a student here. So it's nice to come back and be involved in the activities. The talk that I'm going to give today, is it carrying okay to the back? Can you hear me? And so okay, great. So the talk that I'm going to give today, is, it comes out of thinking that I've been doing over the last few months specifically in the context of the vote to leave the EU, but also is related to, thank you, um, broader discussions that I've been having around issues of citizenship particularly. So in a sense I had been working on a paper on British citizenship in the months leading up to the referendum and then the referendum sort of exploded those ideas in particular sorts of ways and this paper is an attempt to try and work through some of those earlier ideas around citizenship with the specific politics of the present. And I guess the first thing I'd like to say really is that the UK referendum on continued membership of the European was much less, of the European Union, was much less a debate on the pros and cons of membership than a proxy for discussions about race and migration. It's not clear to me that those who voted in the main voted on the benefits or challenges of membership, but rather voted to, around some sense of taking back control, of reclaiming sovereignty and, and so on, and that this debate was really organised around an idea of who belonged and had rights or should have rights and who didn't and shouldn't. And the racialised discourses that were at work during this period were not only about the public politics of the event, so obviously the political figures involved in the debates leading up to the referendum and subsequently have organised their thoughts on this very much, I would suggest, in racialised terms, but that this was something that was also then reproduced both within the media discourse of Brexit and in social scientific analyses of it. So I want to try and unpack some of this within the talk because effectively what I want to argue <coughs> is that we need to understand Brexit within a historical sociological context or that has to be the basis <coughs> for trying to make sense of the politics of the present. And if we take a longer perspective on these contemporary political issues, we'd be much more likely to make sense of what, what is happening at the moment. And the main thing that I see as problematic is that there's an inadequacy of the way in which we think about the past of Britain. 
So whenever people talk about Britain, it has a history as a nation, or it's a national history that's seen to give legitimacy to the political debates that are happening in the present. And yet Britain hasn't ever really been a nation. I mean, I would go so far as to say that Britain has never been a nation. Britain comes into being in 1707 with the Act of Union that brings together the kingdoms of England and Scotland. At the point of union, both England and Scotland had colonies. So they were already imperial states. As they enter into union, they enter into union as imperial states. And from 1707 onwards, continue to acquire, to use a euphemism, further colonies and territories. So from 1707, Britain is an empire, not a nation. And it continues as an empire effectively till 1948, when it transforms itself into a commonwealth. I mean, the shift from empire to commonwealth is more sort of in name, although it's also related to events that have gone on, such as India gaining independence in 47, the dominions such as Canada and Australia also then declaring independence in 1948. So it's only with those events in the mid-20th century that Britain begins its journey to becoming a nation state. But even in 1948, it's not a nation. It's still an empire. Despite the loss of India and the loss of Canada and Australia, it still has many other territories. And the period of decolonization in the post-war period also maps on to the negotiations that are going on in terms of Britain entering the European Economic Community, as it was then. So Britain applies to join in 1961. Its uh, application is rebuffed by de Gaulle twice, and it's only after de Gaulle's death that Britain eventually is able to join the EEC, and it does so in 1973. So at the moment of joining in 1973, it then becomes part of a broader political entity, the European Economic Community. So it goes from empire to commonwealth to EEC. During that period, it's never been a nation state in the way in which we traditionally understand nation states. And what I argue is that we cannot understand what it is then to be British separately from empire or the imperial modes of government, governance that have remained dominant well into the 20th century. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting about Britain's entry into the European Economic Community is that this is the first time that Britain is part of a broader political entity with others who could be regarded as its equal. Previously, it's always led empire, commonwealth, and always done so from a position of hierarchy, of supremacy. Entering the EEC, it has to do it as an equal with the other European nations. And personally, I think a lot of the unease felt by many British people about the EEC is related to that requirement to deal equally with others. So while this is an incredibly long history, within the short talk, I'm not going to talk forever, honest, but, you know, so I can't cover everything from 1707, obviously, in this talk. What I do want to do is sort of deal with some of the issues in truncated form, particularly in terms of decolonisation, because I think that what a sense of what it is to be British is formed quite clearly in the context of decolonisation processes and the ways in which Britain seeks to establish an identity for itself that's distinct from the identity of empire. 
So to talk about British citizenship then, I mean, one of the things that was quite clear within the debates around Brexit was that what was being argued for was who should have rights, who should be able to claim benefits from the state. But that was something that was quite sort of significant within the debates. And the idea was that citizens have the right to claim rights and to claim benefits. Migrants don't and can be asked to go home as Theresa May subtly pointed out with her vans bearing billboards with this message on them in 2013. The problems, and I want to sort of touch on the go home aspect of it because obviously that whole, the immigration policy that's been in place since at least 2010 has been effectively about creating a hostile environment. You know, that's the official government discourse is, I think there was actually a piece of legislation for something like creating a hostile environment. And, and so on. And the go-home bans were, were part of that. And what they were about, for those of you who don't know, was that Theresa May at that time was Home Secretary. She decided to get two vans with billboards on them with go home, go home or face arrest, and then there was a phone number. And you could ring up the phone number to be deported. So it was sort of very... Uh, Voluntary, you know, I mean, it was a. It, there were many problems with the initiative, but uh, for me, one of the key issues with the initiative was where the vans were driven. So the vans were driven around parts of London, which have high ethnic minority populations. Those populations were, for the most part, British citizens. The aim of the initiative was to find visa overstayers and encourage them to go home. The majority of visa overstayers in London, if not in Britain, are Australians, Canadians, and white Americans. The vans didn't go to the areas where they traditionally live. And so, in a sense, you can see how explicitly the notion of race is entangled with who we understand to be a citizen and who we're happy to accept as an illegal immigrant, so long as they happen to be a bit pale. Now, in thinking about citizenship, most social scientific accounts that talk about the emergence of citizenship link it strongly to ideas of the nation. So it's with the emergence of the modern nation state that you begin to have notions of political legitimacy, and citizenship is one of the key political concepts that emerges out of that sort of process. The thing about Britain is, is that the political context for the emergence of understandings of citizenship here was empire. It wasn't the nation. And I want to sort of talk again a little bit historically about how that came to be. Does anybody here know when British citizenship referred primarily to people in Britain? When was the first time that there was an idea of British citizenship that referred to the populations of these islands? Any ideas? Throw out a date. After the 1948 Nationality Act. Okay, that's close. Anybody else? Thinking around 82. 1982? Perfect, gold star. So it wasn't until 1982. This usually works when people don't know that fact and they say like the 17th century and so on. And then you tell them it was 1982 and there's a gasp of astonishment. But it isn't until 1982. 1948 is really significant as well. So to give you a potted history of citizenship in Britain, up until 1948, all subjects of empire, or all the populations within empire, were British subjects of empire. 
There was no distinction whether you lived in London, York, Nairobi, Delhi, Madagascar, the West Indies, whatever. There was an idea that everybody was a subject under the Queen and that there was a horizontal equality amongst those subjects. In 1948, there was a sense within Britain that there was a need to think about British citizenship as something distinctive, because India had got its independence, it was now establishing its own sense of citizenship, Canada and Australia had also got their independence in 1948, and had been thinking about these things. Britain didn't have a concept of citizenship until that time, and so in 1948 it enacted the British Nationality Act. And what it did, this is the first time that Britain writes into law who is a British citizen. And what it says is that you are a citizen of the UK and the colonies. So there was no distinction between the UK and its colonies. That was one common citizenship. And then it had another form of citizenship, which was Commonwealth citizen. And this was all the populations of all former imperial colonies and now Commonwealth countries had Commonwealth citizenship. So the populations of India, of Pakistan, of... Uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, they were all Commonwealth citizens. They had the same rights as the citizens of the UK and its colonies. So in 1948, Britain establishes citizenship that's almost a sort of universal citizenship in which everybody has rights, and they all have the right to travel within Commonwealth, apart from the specific immigration controls at Canada and Australia and India and so on that the independent nations put themselves. But within what is recognised as the Commonwealth, everybody has the right to travel and the right to live. Now, one, one of the things that I find interesting about this is that why was it that Britain didn't need to establish a citizenship act or to think about immigration until this period? Well, it was basically because up until that time, the direction of travel was of Brits going out not people necessarily coming to Britain. So in that context, there was no real sense of needing border controls and, and so on. So anyway, in 1948, they established this particular citizenship. And so the first articulation of citizenship in Britain, people in the colonies are formally regarded to share citizenship with people in Britain. This meant that they have the right to travel to and live in Britain by virtue of being in the Commonwealth. And you can say that they, or we, were citizens. However, as the darker citizens from the colonies and the former colonies began to exercise their rights to travel to and live in Britain, there was a gradual reappraisal of this policy. It was sort of like, we've given you all equality. You are all citizens. But we don't actually expect you to exercise it. And now you're coming here. You know, there was this sort of real sense of shock that people who had previously travelled in the circuits of empire, often in terms of forced or coerced labour, were now choosing freely to travel within those circuits of empire. That would seem to be a problem. And I can say more about this as well, because in a sense, with Empire Windrush coming in in 1948 as well, it's sort of a nice uh, symmetry to this, that the Nationality Act, which gives everybody citizenship, occurs or is passed into law just before Empire Windrush comes, so that when the 500 West Indians dock in Tilbury docks on the Thames, they come not as migrants, they come as British citizens, with every right to be here. At the same time, there's all sorts of other things going on, 
And uh, what I think is quite interesting is why we focus on Empire Windrush when that's 500 West Indians, whereas over that five-year period, say between 45 to 1950, over 200,000 Eastern Europeans are brought to Britain as part of the European Voluntary Workers' Scheme after the end of the Second World War. And there's not a single peep about the 200,000 Eastern Europeans that come, but a whole consternation of the 500 West Indians and all our discourses about multiculturalism and so on stem from this particular act and don't situate it in the context of the broader migratory processes that are going on at the time. So people begin to be really concerned about the darker citizens coming to Britain, particularly from the West Indies and India. And there's concern raised about how do we deal with this. And the thing is, the British Nationality Act can't be dismantled because at this point, Britain still has an empire and to dismantle the British Nationality Act would cause chaos for all the populations in those colonies and so on who would have no citizenship rights. There were sort of competing political groups in those places, so who would you give power to and all this sort of stuff. So the British Nationality Act can't be uh, dismantled, so another solution has to be found. And that solution becomes immigration control. And what immigration control does is lead to the creation of a two-tier system of citizenship. So over the 1960s and 1970s, the British government passes a number of acts called the Commonwealth Immigration Acts. There was one in 1962, one in 1968, and then another one in 1971. And what these acts do is take rights away from citizens. So whereas within standard citizenship studies or migration studies, the standard sort of narrative is migrants come to a place and then we need to work out how to turn migrants into citizens. That's the usual sort of uh, direction of travel. What Britain does is turn citizens into immigrants by taking away rights on the basis of race. So this is absolutely a racialized process because during this period there's constantly a distinction made between the old Commonwealth, which are the white settler colonies of Australia, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa, and the new Commonwealth, which comes to be India, Pakistan and, and the other, you know, so the paler and the darker countries effectively. And what the government doesn't wish to do is restrict the rights of Canadians, of white Canadians, Australians, etc., to come to Britain, but it doesn't want those others to come. But how can it manage this without being explicitly, without having race explicitly at the heart of its policies, even though that's what the intention is? And that's the balancing act that the government sort of has to play during the 60s and 70s. At one point, you know, in the course of establishing the, these acts, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time raises a concern with the Prime Minister and sort of says, you know, look, this is really problematic. I'm worried that you're operating a policy that's incredibly, that's based on race and this is not a good uh, thing. Because remember, we've just had Nazi Germany and the Second World War, and there is a concern about race being central to politics in a particular sort of context. <coughs> so the Archbishop is raising these concerns and the way in which the Prime Minister gets out of it says it's not about race, it's geography. It's just those people happen to be, you know. So this sort of... I mean, it's incredibly interesting, because as I was saying, that this is the period that Britain's also negotiating to enter the EEC. And there is not one, according to, who is it, Dummett and Nicholl, 
They argue that in these negotiations, in Harold Wilson's own account of these negotiations, there was not one moment of discussion of, of EU movement of populations to Britain as a concern that was raised in the context of Britain entering the EEC. So when we think about the furore that's going on in the context of the vote to leave the EU and how we don't want EU migrants and all this sort of stuff, and EU migrants is an anomalous term because it's citizens moving within their own territories, you know, you're not a migrant in that context. But in 1973, there was nothing. The only concern was about stopping Commonwealth immigration, new Commonwealth immigration. So it's sort of ironic that in the current debate, the whole thing is about stopping movement from EU countries. And how are we going to manage? We'll go back to the Commonwealth. And you sort of think, well, hang on, 40 years ago, it was sort of slightly the other way around. So Britain enters the EEC in 1973 as part of its process of decolonisation and as embodying a shift from empire and commonwealth to Europe. This involved taking rights away from its own citizens on the basis of race. And we can see how this current referendum follows this historical precedent by seeking to remove rights from EU citizens and also removing rights from British citizens in terms of how our rights are truncated in relation to Europe. So the whole process of taking rights away from citizens is part of a long process, a long historical process within Britain itself. So I don't know how much longer do you want me to talk about, because that's sort of like the historical context. I have a lot that I can say about Brexit. This has, you know, consumed me for the last few months. So if you don't, okay. I'll talk for a little bit more and then have uh, questions and discussion about this. So one of the other things, that, so that's given you the historical context of the British state and how we misidentify the British state as nation when we should understand it as empire. I've talked about the consequences of misidentifying nation as empire as nation in terms of citizenship. Because if we think about the issue of rights, what gives people rights in the present? as citizens, is to be able to claim some sort of legitimacy by virtue of belonging to the nation historically. That's the process by way of which we enact politics in the present. If we understand the past as a national past, then this much of the population can claim rights in the context of claiming a historical belonging to a nation. If, however, we accept that the British state was not a nation but an empire, then immediately we broaden the range of populations who have the right to claim rights. And this isn't just a um, pedantic argument, because it has actual consequences. The welfare state that was established in 1948 in Britain was established on the basis of resources that came from empire. It wasn't established on the basis of the land, labour and wealth of the population only within the British nation-state. So when we have a discourse in the present that says we don't want them coming here taking our benefits, we've worked hard for them, our ancestors did X, Y and Z, and so why should they come here and take this? <coughs> well, if we understand British history properly, where the British Empire covered four-fifths of the world's territory, ruled over four-fifths of the world's population, and extracted the resources of the land, labour and, and uh, wealth of that population... We understand that what enables the welfare state to be built in Britain 
is not the hard work of white British people living in this island, as even left-wing filmmakers such as Ken Loach would have you believe with his Spirit of 45 film, but the resources actually come from a much more global context. I came across just completely by chance the speech of the General Secretary of the British Economic Society, where he makes a speech, I think it's in 1895, on the general statistics of British Empire. And he talks about the way in which the wealth that comes into the British national government, about, I can't remember the exact figures, but effectively it was about 40% of the wealth accruing to the British government came from tax and labour from within Britain itself, from the British population. 60% of the wealth that was at the disposal of the British government came from taxes from its colonies. And this wasn't money that was then to be used for the governance or administration of the colonies. There was a separate tax also for that. This was just the tax that was coming in for the British government to decide how to use it. And so in a sense, you see how you have an imperial polity that generates and collects tax from a broad geographical area and then uses that tax to establish a welfare state which is the benefit for only a certain part of the population, not the entire population from which it's collected the tax. You could see how that might be understood as unfair. So if people from York, for example, paid taxes in Britain, but only people in London were allowed to claim access to benefits, mm. it would be seen to be a little bit of a raw deal. So this is part of the history that I think we need to put back up front explicitly in order to address the arguments that I think have become quite prevalent. And I think these are really quite dangerous arguments about the left behind that are circulating at the moment, both in the UK and in the US, actually. So there's sort of interesting parallels with what's happening in the US election in relation to this. And it's the way in which the narrative... So before the election, and before the referendum, sorry, Paul Mason, in June, wrote in The Guardian, what happens when, instead of polls, it's poor white English people herded into the polytunnels of Kent to pick strawberries for union-busting gangmasters? The prioritisation of poor white English people over presumably poor white Polish people points to an analysis of class that's deeply racialised and ethnicised. And this has marked the debates prior to the referendum and it continues to mark the debates trying to make sense of what the vote leave was about. And I think that racialising the working class in the context of a populist discourse that seeks to take our country back plays into and reinforces problematic assumptions about who belongs, who has rights, and whose quality of life should have priority in public policy. It also works with a really misguided sense of who we are and how we came to be. As I've been arguing, the we that was dominant within, public, within the public debate on Brexit was a we that was believed to be historically constituted in national terms. And it was this history of being located within the nation that was seen to determine who should or should not have rights. However, if we don't come to understand how we came to be politically constituted as a nation, as Britain, 
that our solutions to the problems that we're facing are likely to be profoundly misguided. I'll maybe leave it there, and there's a lot more, so do ask me questions about any aspect of that. Yeah, thank you. So to what extent is the British story a unique story in relationship to being an imperial state rather than a nation state? Isn't it the case that in fact all the most powerful states of the modern era have been imperial states as well as having a national cause? So to what extent is this uniquely British or is it that all those countries have been defeated and occupied in war in a way that Britain has not? So what is actually the differentiating thing there? And the second question, I take your point about the racialised discourse in relationship to the left behind, but isn't that a normative point? In analytical terms, isn't it the case that those that we call left behind, the areas which voted leave, are white dominant areas? So in terms of analysing, as opposed to being normative, don't we have to understand that as something that's got to be addressed? Okay, great, thank you. Um, I mean, I think that's going to all be caught up in the whole <coughs> process of how and whether we leave and so on, and there's been a move to withdraw from that from prior to the referendum, so I'm sure it'll come back into it. I mean, I think it'd be deeply problematic in the same way that I think leaving the EU is deeply problematic. I'm no fan, you know, there's no love lost for the EU. I've written a number of articles deeply critical of the European project and of the EU itself, but in the context of a debate that the vote... The referendum was only nominally about EU membership. In at least the three months prior to the vote, it was very clear that nobody was voting on whether membership of the EU was, you know, I mean, the whole idea, I'm sure you've probably heard this already, but, but the most Googled term after, on, on the day that the vote was announced, was what is the EU? You sort of think it might be useful to Google that before voting rather than after voting. So that just demonstrates that the vote was about something else. And that something else leads into the, the question, so maybe if I deal with the left behind question first. I mean, so there's, in terms of the data that we have, because of the way in which the referendum was organised, we don't have very good data on who voted and why they voted. So the constituency areas were made different from what they usually are within a general election and so on, so you can't sort of extrapolate from past results to what the results were uh, within each area in, in the referendum. The best and most robust data we have is that which comes from Lord Ashcroft's polls. 
So he, with a number of his uh, workers, uh, polled and interviewed, I think, over 12,000 people on the day of the referendum and got data from them in terms of their gender, their race, their religion, property ownership, their beliefs, all this sort of stuff, and which way they voted. And on the basis of that data, what comes out quite clearly is that the people who disproportionately voted to leave were wealthy, owned properties, had pensions, uh, had jobs, and were certainly not the left behind. And I think the left behind thesis that partly why it's gained a particular sort of traction is that both the, it, it fits into a nice narrative of both the right and the left. You know, it's either a kick up the backside of the establishment or it's sort of, you know, whatever else it is. But in a sense, if you look at the areas that voted leave, their general characteristics, but then you look to see who voted leave within those areas, it's not straightforwardly the same. So if you think about Sunderland, Sunderland was the first one, so it's become an iconic sort of, uh, or become iconic within the debate. It seemed to be white working class, it seemed to be de-industrialised, left behind by globalisation, all this sort of stuff. But then if you listen to the interviews that have been had with people, they've often been with people who've worked at the Nissan factory, for example. Now, the workers at the Nissan factory are not the unemployed, they're not the left behind, these are good jobs, and they voted leave. Yeah? So in a sense, within so the characteristics of an area don't determine who voted, because this vote was obviously split within the area. But according to the data that we have on individuals who voted, the most reliable data points to the fact that it was Middle England that voted to leave. So if you look at the map of, um, the map of Britain and who voted and who didn't, a number of things are quite striking. The areas with no visible immigrants had the highest proportions of leave voters. That was quite clear. Places like Birmingham, Leicester, Bradford, cities that had mixed populations had very close votes. Uh, you know, the margins were very, very close. But if you looked at the countryside around these cities, which are predominantly white, the vote to leave was over 70% in most of those villages that surround Leicester, that surround Warwick, that surround Birmingham, and, and so on. So the in looking through all the data, the the best <coughs> correlation for or what, you know, why people voted leave, the first was being white. Ethnic minority voting was 67 to 75% voted to remain. In terms of the white population, I think it was 47 to 53. 47 voted to remain, 53% voted to leave. So that was the first thing. Then if you were a UKIP or a Tory voter, you are substantially, because there's this whole thing also being said about Labour voters, but Labour voters voted to remain in exactly the same proportions as SNP voters. So the SNP vote to remain was 67%, Labour vote was 66%. So it's not the left behind Labour voters, it's the Tory voters. And then if you look at, and then one of the things that's come out quite recently, and I think Danny Dawling points to this, is that what really skewed the vote. If every area of Britain voted at the same level, we would have had a Remain vote. Yeah. The two areas in which we had the strongest Remain votes, London and Scotland, had the highest number of abstentions. So more people didn't vote in London and Scotland than was the margin of difference between Leave and Remain. 
So I think the left behind narrative is problematic analytically. It doesn't stand up. Um, and then going on to the other question, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, so for me, the argument that I make in other work, and this is how the saying this comes into what I'm working on at the moment, is that again, when we think about social scientific accounts of the nation state, it starts with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 the French Revolution, and then the modern nation-state in Europe, and then the nation form spreads around the rest of the world. I just don't buy that narrative, because in a sense, the states in Europe were never nation-states. Western European states were all empires. And their national core, I think it's confusing to call it a national core, because what it actually is, I think, in many ways, is a racial core. Because that's what establishes a degree of supremacy within the broader imperial entity, there's nothing distinctive that establishes the nation as a, nation, as a, as a national uh, form within Europe. And in a sense, it's only after decolonization that you actually have nations. Prior to decolonization, all entities were either empires, imperial states, or colonies within those states. There were no nations. So, yes, I think that argument would work for... Uh, Netherlands and France. I mean, there's different versions of the story there. <coughs> the general analytical things. Shall we take two more questions? Yes. One here. Uh, one in the back. Yes. So let's start with. Um, uh, um, yeah. Firstly, it was really fascinating talk. Thank you. Um, and this really isn't my field, so it's a really stupid question. Um, I agree, we don't sort of look back to our history well enough at all in very many areas. But the reality is, is the situation that we're in now, and maybe sort of travel and, you know, in terms of general populations and how we can move ourselves around the world has, has changed. Um, so, in, in light of, you know, the, this situation, um, and your thoughts on it, which are incredibly interesting. What sort of controls, or how would you like to see immigration managed within? Because it, it is, you know, however we would like to manage it, it does need managing. And I just wonder, sort of, I'd be really interested to see your thoughts on on what a sort of a good model would be for that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it was expected that there was million of Commonwealth voters in. This Brexit campaign. I mean, in this campaign. So, do you think it's a right decision to allow the Commonwealth people to vote into this campaign? And if so, what is the future relation that out of this Brexit campaign that uh, UK is trying to have with the Commonwealth? Okay. Um, okay. I mean, I haven't thought straightforwardly about migration control and what it would be in the contemporary context. I mean, I think. But these things are things that obviously need to be worked out. So I'm not an advocate for no borders, for example, because I think that the period of no borders was the period of rampant European colonialism. That's what no borders is. And the establishment of borders by the populations that had been colonised was an act against their own exploitation. So it was to create a sort of safe space. So I have no problem with that. What I think there needs to be a recognition of, however, is given that... The, so there are a number of fallacies. One is that everybody wants to move and everybody wants to come to Europe. 
They don't. <laughs> yeah. Then there's an aspect that if the people usually move and move significant distances as a consequence of war, famine, destruction, and natural disasters. There's very, you know, you, you might have economic migrants, but in a sense, all of us who get jobs and move cities are economic migrants of particular forms. It's a very small percentage of the population to move. And when you have mass movements of people, it's always in relation to these mega events in a sense and then we're bound by our commitments to international law we've signed up to the UN Declaration of Human Rights we've signed up to the European Court of Human Rights we have said that we will accept people fleeing war, famine and destruction and persecution but we're not honouring those rights There was a, I live in Birmingham and the um, local paper had a headline two weeks ago Birmingham welcomes 42 Birmingham doing its bit we welcome 42 refugees. Not 42,000, not 42 families, 42. In the context of Germany having taken a million and Sweden taken close to a million, the fact that Birmingham, the second city in Britain, has taken 42 and seeks to trumpet that as a great thing, I think is truly problematic. So there's no way that we're doing anything there as much as we ought to be doing in terms of... Allowing, you know, about in terms of giving refuge to people who are seeking it and fleeing these situations. And in a, and in a sense, if we don't wish to accept refugees, I don't have a problem with that either. Let's stop selling those countries' bonds then. Let's stop being complicit in the creation. So a refugee isn't a national, a natural category. A refugee is somebody who's produced as a consequence of geopolitical events, and we're implicated in the production of people as refugees. So if we don't wish to give them security and safety, then we should stop creating the conditions that are causing them to flee. You know, so there's those sorts of things. So I don't think it's a border control issue in its own terms. It's a broader understanding. And I think there has to be historical recom there has to be recompense for injustices in the present that are consequent to historical processes that have produced these these uh, situations. And we need to honour our commitments under international rights, uh, international law in the present. So those are two things. And if we started on that basis, then we could work out what a border control thing would be subsequently. Um, the situation of Commonwealth citizens being able to vote, I mean, this is part of the way in which the imperial modes of governance haven't been completely cleansed from the British political context. And where you can see some of these debates most clearly is in the situation of Irish people in Britain. Because when Ireland got its independence, it refused to join the Commonwealth. But that caused a problem for how Irish, because there was a lot of migration, most, you know, of Irish people coming over to work, going back, there was a constant movement. And so how would you manage that movement if they weren't part of the Commonwealth? Because Commonwealth citizens, in, as I said in 1948, had the right to come. And so there was a, a, within legislation, it was put that Ireland would be recognised as if it was a Commonwealth country, and Irish citizens would be recognised as if they were Commonwealth citizens. That's the exact legal phrasing. So Ireland isn't part of the Commonwealth, but is recognised <coughs> as if it was part of the Commonwealth and similarly with citizenship. The fact that Ireland joined the EEC on the same day as Britain joined it meant that then the rights to move and all that sort of stuff came under EU law. But now if Britain leaves, 
Has that previous agreement been trumped by EU law and now are Irish people only EU citizens? But in the referendum, they voted because they're also understood to be as if they were Commonwealth citizens. <laughs> you know, so untangling all of this is going to be an incredible headache. And we only have two people, apparently, appointed by the government as trade negotiators. The EU has about 500 already appointed, so there's a disparity there. So should Commonwealth citizens have the right to vote? Well, they have the right to vote. I'm not going to make an argument that they should or they shouldn't. Who has? What I'm making an argument for is the way in which the claims that we make in the present are rooted in an understanding of a past that's national. That's an erroneous understanding. Our past is an imperial past. That would change the way in which we think about politics in the present if we took that seriously. Any more questions? Yes? I'm not an academic, so I haven't heard the idea before that you couldn't be a nation state and have an empire. Is that normally accepted that if you had an empire, you can't be classified as a nation state? Because what the company. Well, the way Western which... nation states can look. <coughs> I mean, the, so the traditional understanding is that you have a nation and the nation has an empire. And I think that's a really problematic way of understanding this because it's not as if there was Britain and then Britain had an empire. I would rather say that Britain was an empire, therefore to think of Britain as an empire, because that's the way in which it thought about itself. So the colonies were integrated into the political establishment. You had, there was a colonial office that had a ministry you know, within government and so on. It was an integrated whole. It wasn't as if there was a separate situation. Thinking about these things as separate is partly what enables us not to take responsibility in the present for what Britain had been in the past. It's easy to say, oh, well, you know, that, that was then, this is now. And actually, we've always, you know, so even, what was it, a few years ago, Michael Gove, as when he was education secretary, wanted to turn the, change the national history curriculum for schools and make it organised around Our Island Story, which was a book written in 1905. And it told the history of kings and queens and so on within Britain. You know, so to think about British the British past as being encapsulated sufficiently with our island story misses the fact that even in the present, Britain is an island in a bit, not just an island. And actually, British history is four-fifths of world history. How can you understand our contemporary present if you truncate that historical past just to what happens on this island? That's what perpetuates the politics of go home. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that's entirely linked. So it's until we begin thinking about Britain as an empire, not as having an empire, but as an empire, we'll continue to perpetuate a politics that sees people... You know, I constantly get called an immigrant or a second generation... Yes, a second... And what basis am I second generation? My family, for as long as they've been passports, my family have held British passports. What makes me an immigrant? I don't choose to be British. I'm not saying this with any sense of pride or whatever, but history has made me British. Who are you now to say that I'm not? Yeah. So, yeah, one and then John. Me? Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much.
Very, very interesting. So I thought uh, this distinction you made between the national core and the racial core is very interesting, and the nationalized core and the role of race in this, and perhaps uh, considering Europe's very racialized history, the way these ideas interact or overlap or enforce. If you could say something a bit more about that, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, aren't you conf conflating um, my, I accept your point about uh, uh, the kind of imperial legal you know, link between empire and legal, legal definitions but there's a distinction between that and what people sociologically feel um, so uh, I don't see why there can't, people, there can't be nations and empires, why it's either or. And sociologically, much of the population thought of themselves in national terms rather than imperial terms. Um, one significant imperial historian in the British 19th century said that people were by and large unaware of, of empire for much of the period of the 19th century. The imperial uh, concept was important for aspiring members of the uh, higher education going off to the imperial service. But for much of the population, their, their, their horizons were, were more national. So I, I find it, the, again, you've got the distinction between sociological and, 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 and legislative uh, uh, realities. Um, and this uh, also, uh, I think, relates to uh, your, your notion of nations being relatively recent post-empire, when given your emphasis on racial discourse, why should people conceive themselves in, in national terms suddenly after the collapse of the empire rather than racial terms? So I, I think there's a, there's a bit of a kind of intellectual play going on there in, in that kind of argument. Okay, so, I mean, in a sense, I don't think anybody thinks of themselves in national terms unless it's something that's great. So every nation is a project. So all the history, you know, I mean, I remember I did the uh, module with Anthony Smith here on nationalism and did the stuff on Italy and Germany and how, you know, you had Italians and then you had to, you were, no, you created Italy and then you had to create Italians because mm -hmm. the sense of bringing together the different, people had different sorts of identities and the construction, the whole Eugene Weber study on making peasants into Frenchmen, this whole aspect. So even within Britain, there was a sense of a national project. And one of the things that I want to link is the way in which the construction of a national project in Britain occurs alongside, it doesn't occur separate from how that national project is presented as superior to the imperial population. So this is what I was saying about how when Britain enters the EU, it's the first time it's had to encounter other peoples as equals. Previously, its national population dealt with all others as its subordinates, and the British nation had, was supreme in relation to these other things. So there was a definite hierarchy. So the national project is a racial project in those terms, and it becomes established quite clearly when you think about when the populations from the other parts of empire come to Britain. So one of the things, that, and I wanted to sort of say this earlier in relation to the left behind stuff, is that what that discourse also doesn't <coughs> take into account is the contemporary history that enables that claim to be made. 
So, for example, when you had populations from the West Indies, India, elsewhere coming to Britain in the 50s and 60s, there was an informal colour bar that operated in employment. A lot of jobs were, you know, unions were strong. From where I live in Birmingham, you had the car factories and so on. They were incredibly strong unions. You couldn't get a job working at Longbridge unless you were a member of the union. You couldn't become a member of the union if you weren't white. They operated this quite strongly. So the good working class jobs were only available to white British people. Other British citizens who came in had to take precarious work, non-unionised work, and, and so on. Even things like the British Transport operated a colour bar in the 50s and not employing anybody who wasn't white. So if you've had a situation in which, as working class and as white, you've, employed, you've had, so had, good conditions, well-paid jobs, unionised, etc., and you're above and you have guaranteed access to those jobs against these others who are now coming in, when the unions are destroyed and everybody is competing on a level playing field for precarious, non-unionised, low-paid work, obviously the shift from good work to low work is going to be understood as a decline. The argument that could be made is, oh God, this really is crap. Sorry guys, we didn't let you into these jobs earlier. Let's argue for everybody to have unionised, good, well-paid jobs. Instead, the argument is, oh look, the white working class have been disproportionately affected by the forces of globalisation and we should do what it is that we can to help them because they've been left behind. Well, if what we're concerned about are the conditions of non-unionised, low-paid, precarious work, why would we racialize those who are affected by it and only seek to direct our attention to those who are white unless we think it's okay for black and brown people to do these jobs but not white people to do these jobs? And so that's the way in which the national project is established <coughs> in relation to an imperial idea organized around an understanding of racial hierarchy. So I hope I've got both of those questions with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I might just have one last round. So one question. Um, any other last one? Okay. So, yeah. I'm not a sociologist, and I listen to your talk with great interest. And you um, keep emphasising the nation state. And uh, I'm not an expert on nation states, but I know that many of them are very, very recent in the world. But this emphasis and love and talk on migration, of, sort of what sort of citizenship you have, I'm surprised you haven't come into what I think is the present age and started to talk a bit more, particularly as you imply that you're a second generation migrant. No, I said I'm a citizen, I'm not a second generation Well, some people talk I'm about migration, people born in the country, we do talk about first generation. Yeah, but I'm generation. saying that that's problematic. Precisely because if my family have always had British citizenship, why would I call myself a second well, generation? Well, you're talking a lot about the legal sense, and I know the yeah. legal aspects are important, but I think one should be talking much more about multiple attachments. Uh, you talk about the old empire, and the, you haven't mentioned some of the responsibilities of people in the Commonwealth. And I guess I'm particularly knowledgeable experience of some of the people in the sort of what we call the white Canada, the English-speaking Commonwealth. 
And a lot of that, you look at the number of people who fought in the First World War, the Second World War, disproportionately much, much higher by the British, poor white British people who tended to go into the army, far more proportion to the population of New Zealanders, Australians, uh, in people with enormous family links. You talk about people from many parts of the world, nearly everybody I talk to has multiple attachments. You talk about home, part of your home maybe in India and Pakistan and all sorts of countries, um, Commonwealth. Those ties don't end, they continue, and they're becoming increasingly important factors the norm. I think there's far too much discussion on migration, on the nation states, and what you are legally a citizen. The number of people would have two citizenships, three citizenships. I heard somebody the other day who had five citizenships. I mean, no refugees are particularly quick to take out citizenship because they haven't got a state in many cases, most cases, that they can go back to and claim to be part of that country because refugee disturbances are very, very significant, unfortunately. I think you need to, as I say, perhaps try and think a little bit more in terms of the reality of what I think is lives, but those attachments and multiple attachments are profoundly important. Journeys, 
And if we recognise that the polity is a broader polity, then movement within that was a completely normal and standard issue sort of phenomenon. The difference is, is that prior to the 1940s, a lot of movement within the circuits of empire was forced and coerced in the context of the European trade in human beings, in the context of bonded labour, and, and so on. And it's after it's the 20th century that you begin to have the voluntary free movement of people within those same circuits. And that's what causes the problem. So the fact that people have moved is also what leads to these different sorts of attachments. But my interest is much more in the sort of analytical context that provides the basis for thinking about issues in the present. And so in that sense, I mean, if we're thinking about who made it, who made it a proxy for migration, well, in a sense, the vote leave camp made it a proxy for migration. If you look at the way in which their campaigning shifted and intensified in the three months prior to the vote, they made it about that. So then it became about that. There was never a groundswell of opinion within the country wishing for a vote. You know, people didn't walk around thinking, oh, I really wish we had a vote on the EU. I just, I'm so frustrated by the EU. I mean, that just wasn't the case. David Cameron only called the referendum in order to deal with the problem in the Tory party. In a sense, it's his arrogance that he thought he could win this referendum without doing the groundwork to ensure its success that led to the situation that we're currently in. So there was no groundswell of opinion against the EU. Even after we voted to leave, I don't know, I mean, this went round on social media quite a lot, so you might have heard it already, but the caller who phoned up James O'Brien on the LBC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you hear that? And it's sort of like, oh, I'm so glad we've left. I'm, I'm a, I can't remember, I think he was an electrician. I'm an electrician. It might affect me financially, but I'm prepared to have that financial uh, you know, downturn in my own company. But because we've left and we've taken back sovereignty, we're not subject to European laws anymore. And James O'Brien says, well, which laws in particular are you glad we're no longer subject to? And he's like, all of them. <laughs> and James is sort of like, yeah, but that's great, but can you name one? And he's like, oh, well, no, all of them. He's like, no, no, name one. And he says, oh, well, the thing about bananas, that we have to have straight bananas. <laughs> and James O'Brien says, well, you do realise that was never a thing. So can you name one? And he couldn't. You know, so this was something that was directly created by the Vote Leave camp. And they played on particular things. So what's interesting, I think, is that they used race and migration... They also use the NHS. But the NHS just gets dropped. So why is it now that we think that the vote to leave was because people don't like people who don't look like them, rather than because they really wanted this money to go to the NHS? Why isn't that a commitment that we're honouring? Why is it only this? So in that sense, I would draw a line, and this might be contentious, from Theresa May to Margaret Thatcher to Enoch Powell. That's the line of what we're currently living through at the moment. And I think we need to be quite frightened by politics in the present because what is happening both here and across the pond in the US is the normalisation of the terms of fascism. And I will say that quite straightforwardly. I don't think this isn't about that. This is about that. And the way in which it becomes a part of everyday discourse, this is how it happens you know, as who is it, Michael Rosen says, people don't come in in stormtrooper uniforms and so on. That's not how it happens. This is how it happens. So we need to do something. 
And you've got to figure out what it is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.